because some people think that math is important because of all the daily applications like doing your taxes and calculating your mortgage. And while that's true, that's almost the most boring possible reason to learn mathematics. And then there's the, the idea that we need mathematics to go on to science and engineering. And that's also true. But then it gives everyone else a reason to go, oh, well, I don't need maths then. Because if I'm not going to be a scientist or an engineer, then bye, I don't have to do this. With me is Eugenia Chang, scientist in residence at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She won tenure in pure mathematics at the University of Sheffield in the UK, where she is now an honorary fellow, and has a PhD in pure mathematics from the University of Cambridge. She was an early pioneer of math on YouTube, and her videos have been viewed around 15 million times. She's the author of popular math books How to Bake Pie, Beyond Infinity, and her most recent book The Art of Logic in an Illogical World, which she's here to talk to us about today. But there's another reason, which is because math is a way of thinking, and that that is important to everybody. And I think that we need to try and address all of those things, and we tend to to miss out on the part where it really is just, it's a really good way of training your brain. And in compulsory levels, especially at elementary school, I think one of the big issues is that elementary school teachers are usually general teachers who have to teach some of everything. And they are often people for whom math wasn't their favorite subject ever. And maybe they weren't even that comfortable with it. Because people who are good at math, tend to get directed into teaching math at a higher level as specialist math teachers rather than general ones. And that's not true of everybody, but that does seem to be often the case. And as a result, many children, their first experience of mathematics in school is from somebody who doesn't like it that much themselves and thinks it's just something that you have to get through to pass some tests and to get through some standards and that it's all about numbers and that there are set ways of doing things and it doesn't involve imagination or creativity and it's not something that you love but it's something you have to get on with so that you can understand your tax bill and that is a great shame and I think that in around about kindergarten or first grade, it's okay because it's mostly about counting and just understanding what numbers are and using blocks and playing around with things. But then it quickly gets into something that is actually quite difficult to teach if you if you don't understand it much beyond the thing that you're teaching. And I've experienced teaching math at the very limits of what I'm what I understand when I had barely got my PhD and I started teaching my research field. And it is pretty scary being right at the limit of what you understand and trying to teach it. And so one of the problems I think is that is this idea that we don't need specialist math teachers until until later. And I think we've got it a bit too late at the moment and that we could do with having specialist math teachers a bit earlier. As someone who has, I mean, your book was not the first time I encountered mathematical logic. I am uh, my spouse um, who lives in the same house with me is a mathematician. And so we've engaged in conversations about mathematical logic um, for a long time now. And I, as somebody who in uh, who, you know, I'm sure it's very common for mathematicians in a first encounter with any person to say, oh, I'm a mathematician. And I said that thing, which is, oh, I was never very good at math, or mm. I didn't like math. And mm-hmm. over a period of time, I have gotten to know mathematics in an entirely different way 
than、mm. I did throughout grade school, and I have found it much, much more interesting and much more engaging to get past. A lot of the stuff that we did in school that was just about kind of shifting equations around、mm, um, mm-hmm. to the kind of core understanding and the、mm. logical bits, and I found that so much more valuable and so much more interesting and so much more engaging. And I'm I, I it makes me sort of annoyed that we didn't do some of that stuff、yeah. back in school because while yeah, I can't but, necessarily、yeah. say that I would have enjoyed it a whole lot more, I think I would have because I'm not that different than I I'm not that different now than、mm-hmm. I was then.、Mm-hmm. Yes, and it makes me it makes me really sad because we're putting off. Huge numbers of people from a subject that they might have liked had it been presented differently. And my teaching art students has been really interesting because I get to study people who were put off math in earlier parts of their lives. They weren't all put off it, but many of them really were. And my class isn't compulsory. They do have to take two science classes, but they can choose from a whole range of things. But I write a description of my class that pers- tries to persuade people that this kind of math will be different from the kind of math that you might have encountered before, and that if you think you hate math but you're open to changing your mind, then this may be a class for you. And I do seem to have successfully changed their minds. And many of them say to me at the end of the class, "Oh, why aren't we taught math like this in school? It's much more interesting." And 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 even. Fun, and so I I agree with you. I think that many people would find it more interesting if it was more about those the way of thinking, the the logic behind situations, and it's it's much more widely applicable as well. Because if you're being asked to solve, say, a quadratic equation, then it doesn't actually come up very often in your daily life. When did you last solve a quadratic equation to do something in your daily life? Personally, I don't know when I last did it. I don't know if I ever have done. Whereas, if you're thinking about Logic, logic comes up all the time in everything that we ever do. If we even make the slightest bit of a of an argument, so rather than just going around making declarations, if you just go around making declarations, then that doesn't involve any logic. But if you ever try to develop an argument or persuade anyone of anything, then logic starts coming into it, and so. That is much more relevant to all of our lives than quadratic equations or differential equations or or things like that. I think it also does a disservice to the people who both could be interested in mathematics, sort of more long term and more in depth, but also to the people who go through grade school believing they're really good at math, but maybe aren't necessarily prepared for what math as an undergraduate or math as a graduate or math、mm. as a research job will be, because it's it's a very different beast. Yes, and we well, yes, we're doing a disservice both ways round. And when I did teach math majors at research universities, many of them arrived, and I would ask them, "Oh, why do you, why why have you chosen math?" I always like asking students at the beginning of the semester, "Why are you here? What are you doing here? Why have you chosen? Why are you even in education?" Sometimes they're really astonished that that I'm even posing that question, and. The math majors very often say that they love math because it's easy, or they love math because there's always one correct answer. And I kind of go, uh oh, because it doesn't stay like that for very long. And liking math because it's easy is really tenuous because at some point it's not going to be easy anymore. And if you only liked it because it was easy, then well, I've seen a lot of students sort of give up. When it becomes difficult, because they don't want to, they, they really enjoyed getting all the right answers. And then there's the fact that that at a higher level, math is not just about getting the right answer, and there isn't just one clear right answer. But it becomes about exploring different worlds in which different things are possible, and a lot of different worlds. 
came up from mathematicians going, oh, I don't, I don't like that answer. I want a different answer. And so, for example, the complex numbers came up from mathematicians going, well, it seems like we can't take the square roots of negative numbers, but I kind of want to take the square roots of negative numbers. So let's see what happens if I kind of pretend that I can and invent a whole new thing. And that's what imaginary numbers are. They are kind of imaginary answers to square roots of negative numbers that turn out to be not only very beautiful and a lot of interesting patterns come up that you can't see if you're only doing ordinary numbers, but they they turn out to be oddly useful for, for physicists who use them to study real world examples, despite the fact that they sound totally made up. And so the idea that math is rigid and has fixed rules and clear answers is is really not a realistic depiction of advanced mathematics. There's a lot of sort of myths about math that we deal with that we don't even sort of realize we have uh, that exist within our culture, but they're there and they're very difficult to get rid of and to dislodge from people's brains. The idea that something in mathematics would be useful in a discussion about sexual harassment that isn't statistics. Obviously, statistics mm-hmm. is a, a tool to use, but s- something other than just straight numbers, I think, catches a lot of people off guard. Yes. And one reason is that there's a myth about mathematics, that it's all about numbers and equations. And that is a very limiting view of mathematics. And it's something that is understandable because when you're in school, it often is just about numbers and equations and occasionally triangles in geometry. But there's so much math beyond that. And many people are doing that math every day without realizing it. Because if you think that math is only about numbers, then when you're not doing numbers, then you think you're not doing math. And so people know that they're somehow doing math when they're adding up their grocery bill, except that that's really just arithmetic. It's not really mathematics at all. But then there, as you say, there are other situations that I see mathematically because my brain is entirely, is, is very, um, is somehow trained to think mathematically. But I don't want to say it's just trained. It's geared towards that. That is what the tendencies of my brain are to, to see mathematics everywhere. And even I didn't necessarily realize I was doing it until I sat down and thought about all these divisive arguments that are happening in the world and why I'm able to see them quite clearly in ways that I don't I don't see being discussed often during those very emotional, emotionally charged arguments. What I really liked about this book and that what I think has stuck with me is it's you talk as much about interrogating the logic of your own beliefs and opinions Mm. and not Mm -hmm. really so much about trying to win an argument, but really kind Mm. of trying to understand at the lowest sort of core fundamental level what it is that you believe and also what it is that two people are fundamentally disagreeing about. Um, And that that sort of understanding the kind of underlying logical system of my own mind was not something I expected to find, but I'm I'm now beginning to understand my own system of logic a lot better. Oh, I'm very glad to hear that. And I'm glad that you picked up on that because the idea of winning an argument is very pervasive. And even after writing this book, some people have said things to me like, oh, if I read this book, will I then know how to win all arguments? And I have to say, this isn't the point. And that 
that if you go into an argument thinking the point is to win it, then that's one of the reasons we get into the such ugly arguments. Because if both sides are just trying to win by proving that the other person is wrong, then how are we ever going to come to any agreements about anything? Whereas if you go into it as a, a discussion in order to try and understand something better, then there is no there is no winning and there is no losing. We'll all discover something and we'll discover it better if we work together. And that sounds a bit kind of new world hippie. But I really do believe that I have much better discussions with people when I commit myself to trying to understand what they are thinking and why they're thinking it, rather than trying to convince themselves to change their mind or to try and show that I'm right. And the problem is that if you're under attack in some way, then it's very natural to try and defend yourself. And I do this as much as anyone else does, that if someone attacks my point, then still my natural urge is to defend it. And if I just slow down a bit and instead remember to try and understand what point they're really trying to make, then it can be a much more productive discussion. And logic and logical thinking really help me with that. One of the points where the points in the book that this really started, that I really started to kind of understand uh, a bit better and start interrogating my own um, arguments and my own beliefs was when you were talking uh, initially about logical implication and the idea of false positives versus false negatives. I think mm. it was with jet lag. Um, and I it was like, oh, that makes total sense. I never <laughs> thought about it in that way. Could you just sort of go through that? I, I think our listeners would find it, um, I hope they would find it as helpful as I did in trying to sort of wrap my head around how to kind of get to the core mm -hmm. of some pieces of information. Well, I, I'd like to point out that I got a great deal of extra understanding about myself just by writing this book, actually, because although I'd thought about these things a lot, you have to think about them much harder and more clearly in order to explain them to somebody else. And that's one of the great things about teaching as well, why you learn so much from it. And I, I'd thought about false positives and negatives before, but in the course of writing the book, I thought of so many more situations that are connected by this concept. And um, the, the case that you're talking about of jet lag isn't something that I'd ever thought about as a false positive or negative before, but it's to do with how I deal with jet lag. And what I realized when I'm dealing with jet lag is that I am very good at staying awake when I'm underslept, but I'm not very good at going to sleep when I'm not tired. And that's a false positive and false negative situation because one of them, false positive is about doing something uh, when you didn't need to. And the other one is about not doing something when you did need to. And that that kind of thing comes up a lot all over the place. So I realized that because I'm much better at staying up when I'm tired, my way of dealing with jet lag is to just stay up until it's nighttime in wherever I've, I've landed and not let myself go to sleep until then. And then that just fixes it immediately. And false positives and false negatives more commonly come up in situations of something like drug testing or cancer screening or testing for something in a population where you have a test, but it's not totally accurate. You can't tell whether it's giving the correct result or not. So a false positive is where it tells you that somebody, say, does have cancer when actually they don't. And then a false negative is where it says they don't have cancer when actually they do. And in that case, I'm much more worried about false negatives. So some people are really worried about being diagnosed with cancer when they don't have it because of the trauma that is involved with having that kind of diagnosis. But I'm much more worried about missing a diagnosis because I know that many cancers are much easier to treat if you catch them early. And so if you miss a diagnosis, that could prove to be have really terrible results. 
And then I realized that this is analogous to the situation when you're thinking about social services, because some people object to social services because they're, they're afraid that we're going to help some people who don't really need help. Whereas I'm much more worried about the fact that we are neglecting some people who really need help. And that's another false positive and false negative situation where I'm much more worried about the false negatives than the false positives. And this is also the case for voter suppression, where some people are very worried about voter fraud, which I would regard as a false positive because it is people voting when they shouldn't be voting, as opposed to voter suppression, which is when people are prevented from voting when they really should be allowed to vote. And I'm much more worried about voter suppression than, than voter fraud. So it's another case where I'm more worried about the false positive, the false negatives than the false positives. And then this does also lead to questions about sexual harassment accusations and what we should do with them, because this is a a, a very it's a very difficult argument and i think it gets made into something very black and white where one side goes oh but people can be falsely accused so we have to make sure that we count everyone as innocent until they've been proved guilty and then other people say no we have to believe all the accusers because there are too many people who are getting away with with sexual assault and it's really traumatic for the victims and the thing is that both of those are a problem. And one of them is a false positive, which is someone being accused when they're innocent. And the other one is a false negative, which is someone getting off free when they're guilty. And again, I am more worried about the false negatives than the false positives. And it doesn't mean that we should ignore the false positives. And it doesn't mean that the false positives don't exist. It, it is also something that we should worry about because being falsely accused is a terrible thing. But being sexually assaulted is, I think, worse. And it is ruining the lives of so many people. And the fact that so many people get away with sexual harassment is also leading to, it's it's leading to a vicious circle because it is giving us a, a, a world, a society in which people kind of know they can get away with things, which causes it to happen more. And that's another reason that I'm more worried about the false negatives in that situation than the false positives. And having that abstract idea of a a false positive and a false negative has helped me to understand all of these different situations using kind of less of my brain power. Because once I've related it back to that situation, it's something that I've already understood. So instead of having to go around understanding all those situations separately, I can put them all in the same place in my brain and do them all at once. And that is one of the things that mathematics is really about. It's about finding an abstract situation that applies in the many different situations so that you can save your poor finite brain power and only do something once instead of lots of times. So when we're talking about abstraction, this idea of um, making something more abstract or simpler, simplifying it in some way, um, I think this is something that a lot of people have problems with in mathematics, but also in general, the idea of talking about uh, something in a, in a simpler way. So how do we, when we're trying to simplify something or abstract it, how, how do we decide what details we can strip away and what what details are important to keep there? Because obviously we can abstract away so much that it's sort of no longer relevant. Right. And if you simplify something just by forgetting loads of details that are important, then that's over the top. And so it is a, it is a subtle art. And that's why this book is called The Art of Logic, because it's not a straightforward process, but it is one that is really key in mathematics. I think to me, the, the two key disciplines in mathematics are abstraction and logic. And it starts at the very beginning, as it were, with the numbers, which are already an abstraction, and we don't necessarily think about them as an abstraction. But if you start trying to, to teach a small child to count, then you just keep having 
having to count things in front of them and wait until they make that leap of abstraction for themselves. So you count three Lego bricks and you count three cookies and you count three strawberries or whatever. And you just have to wait until they get the idea that all those situations have something in common, which is the concept of three, which is an abstract concept. And you can't do it for them. You just have to wait until they catch on. And every stage of math involves more leaps of abstraction like that. And I think each time one happens in school, some people don't make it and they fall off or they don't see the point. And knowing which details to forget is important because if you, for example, if you're looking at two apples and two bananas, then you could say, oh, they're both two fruits. And that's true. But then you won't be able to connect those with two cookies, for example. And so if you go one level further to just two things, then you do get to connect them with two cookies. But that doesn't mean that's what you always want to do, right? If you're thinking about needing to eat some fruit today because it's good for you, then a cookie won't do it no matter how much you wish it would. So it depends on what situation you're trying to study. And the point about abstraction is to home in on the features that are relevant and temporarily ignore features that are not relevant. So one of my favorite abstractions is the standard London underground map, which is very clear and it's kind of iconic, but it's it's easy to use to get around because it clearly shows the connections between different lines. And then you can tell how many changes you need to make to get from one station to another. But it doesn't tell you where the stations are geographically exactly. And this means that you might end up trying to take a train somewhere when you could have just walked because you can't tell from the map how close they are together. But if you've ever seen a geographically accurate map of the London Underground, it's a complete mess. And it would be impossible to try and use it because the the lines just wiggle all over the place, which isn't to say it's bad. It's just not so helpful for the purposes of trying to find your way around on the tube. But both of those different abstractions are useful for something. The, ge the, the geographical one is still interesting, and it's useful to know just exactly how all those neighborhoods are connected with each other. And so when we're when we're making arguments in life, people often say, oh, well, that would be like saying such and such and such a thing. And often they're trying to discredit your arguments by claiming that if you think that, then you're going to think this terrible thing as well, which is about taking the level of abstraction too far. And one example of that is when people talk about, we talk about sexism of men against women. And some people say, oh, well, women are sexist against men too. And is that the same thing? Well, at a very high level of abstraction, it is because it's people being sexist towards people. But at a slightly lower level of, of abstraction, there is a difference because men hold greater power overall in society, even if individuals don't, but overall in society, they do. And so men being sexist towards women is a group holding power being sexist towards a group who lacks power. Whereas when women are sexist towards men, it is people who lack power being sexist towards people who hold power, which is a different situation. And we can then, once we've identified that as a difference, we can say, well, which is a relevant level of abstraction to pick? Does it does that difference in power actually manifest itself to women? And then we can have an argument about how it manifests itself rather than just saying, oh, well, women are sexist too, and then getting all upset with each other. So I also want to talk about um, the idea of negation versus opposites, which you tackle mm -hmm. in the book very clearly. Um, and I think more people need to have a better understanding of these two things. Um, so can you walk through a little bit about negation versus opposites? Yes, opposites are like opposite extremes. 
And so the opposite of hot is cold. And the opposite of north is south. And the opposite of in front of is behind and things like that. And the thing is, in logic, it doesn't really quite work like that. Because in logic, when we negate something, we're just saying this thing is not true. We're not going to weigh the opposite extreme and saying the entire opposite thing is true. And so in that case, the opposite of black is not black. And that encompasses all sorts of things. So if we're really talking about colors, then that encompasses red and stripy and anything else, not just white. And the opposite of hot is not hot, which could just mean you're vaguely warm. It doesn't have to mean you're actually cold. And so then the opposite of good isn't bad. The negation of good isn't bad. It's just not good. And this often comes up when, say, some former world leader dies, and then you get a whole slew of articles with some of them going, this was the greatest leader ever, and the other articles going, this was a terrible leader, what are you talking about? Whereas maybe what's actually true is that, that these were some good things that they did, and these were some bad things that they did, and now let's weigh up overall whether the good things they did outweigh the bad things, or whether the bad things they did outweigh the good things. And then we could say, well, they weren't the greatest leader ever. That doesn't mean they were the worst one ever. It might mean that they were the, you know, they were a medium one or the, the second worst one or something. And if we, if we ignore that whole middle area, then what we're doing is we're ignoring the existence of gray areas. And this means that we are dooming ourselves to have extreme divisive arguments that are in terms of black and white all the time. And this is also what happens when we have zero-sum games where there's only winning and losing, and the only way you can win is by making the other person lose. And that also sets up horrible competitive situations. Whereas if we realize that there's nuance in almost everything, then we realize that actually we're all somewhere in the middle on a gray area. And so it might seem that some people just don't believe in healthcare and that some other people just do believe in healthcare and that those are two completely incompatible situations. But if we investigate it further, then we might find that that some people think that, that some some people under some circumstances deserve some healthcare. You know, maybe we can persuade people to think that, that there should still be emergency services, or maybe we think that that people who um are in really maybe people who've gone out to war and been injured, maybe they deserve some medical care. And that then we realize that it's not just a black and white situation of people being for it and people being against it. But for people it's about people being for it under different a different range of circumstances. And once we're in that gray area and we're talking about what that range of circumstances is, then we can, as you say, be in a shared space of different different types of gray in the middle, rather than just the extremes of black and white. Now, there are some cases where it seems like you have to draw a line in between the black and the white. For example, if you're setting some kind of legal limit, such as the, the legal limit on uh, drink driving, where it's very important that there is a clear limit so that the law can be activated. Whereas, in fact, there's there's kind of, you could say, one extreme position to take is that nobody should ever drink under any circumstances. And that happened in the Prohibition era and was discovered to be lead to all sorts of other consequences. And so taking the extreme positions is not necessarily something that we always want to do, but to acknowledge 
that there might be something in between that we should negotiate. And those grey areas come up a lot, again, when we're talking about accusations of sexual harassment, because some people object to the Me Too movement, and they're saying, oh, you're turning everyone into a rapist. And what they're doing is that they are they are sort of pretending that there's no grey area and that we're just deciding that everybody is equally as all sexual harassment is the same as rape. And that's not what anyone is saying. But what everyone is saying is that, that, that yes, rape is terrible, but that there are other types of sexual harassment and assault that are also bad, even though they're not rape. And that we should be able to stop some of those as well, instead of just thinking that sexual assault is about rape and not just rape, but, but rape by anonymous, violent people down a dark alleyway, which is a very extreme view to take. There's this idea, like you say, that we have to draw our sort of really arbitrary lines in some cases. Uh, in the book, you talk about having to draw the line of grade point boundaries uh, in certain places when people take exams. To some extent, that is an arbitrary line as to who gets the B and who gets the A. Um, mm-hmm. And if we if we all understand that to some extent, that line is arbitrary, but if that line has to be drawn somewhere, then it's a matter of figuring out where in that gray space we want to put it and how fuzzy that line should be to some extent. And then it becomes more about erring to one side or erring mm-hmm. to the other side. Where do you want the buffer to be? What, what extra space do you want? Do you want to err mm-hmm. more towards the side of, um, of, of not encouraging sexual harassment or do you want to err more mm-hmm. towards the other side? Mm-hmm. And some people argue right. that we've been farther to one side for a really long time and we need to pull that line back and acknowledge that we've cut off a whole bunch of really dark gray mm-hmm. that perhaps should be on the other side of that line. Mm-hmm. And that brings us back to the conversation about false positives and false negatives because when you err one, one way, you're letting in more false positives and when you err the other way, you're letting in more false negatives. That's often what it happens. And in discussions about grade boundaries, it often turns into that. Is it, is it, we're giving loads of people A's when they don't deserve it, which is grade inflation? Or is it that we're, we're depriving people of A's when they should have it, which is maybe hurting people's futures or something? And I'm in the very happy position now of being at an art school that has no grades. And so I don't have to deal with those conversations ever again. And I'm quite glad about that. But the, the drawing of lines always creates a weird anomaly, because if you draw a hard line at all, then there's always going to be something strange going on just on either side of it, where if you say that 70 is an A, then what about someone who got 69 and a half? So then you say, okay, well, then we'll allow 69 and a half because it's so close to 70. But then what about the person who got 69? And on it goes, and you can never really stop. And this is a situation that, that I get into quite often when I eat too much cake, for example. So you go, oh, one piece of cake won't hurt. And you go, oh, well, a little bit more won't hurt. You go, oh, well, a little bit more won't hurt. And it reminds me of a, um, a type of mathematical proof called proof by induction, where you say, you just keep going up by small increments. And you say, well, if this amount is okay, if this, if, if any amount X was okay, then X plus one must be okay because one is so tiny. And then you end up being able to prove that every amount X is okay because if you can do anything, then you can add one, you can add one, you can add one. And that's how I end up eating too much cake because before I've known it, I've gone, oh, wait, oh, wait, I ate too much. I ate five slices of cake just by eating one tiny little mouthful extra the whole time. And there are only two ways really to, to iron out that anomaly 
by hard logic. One is to eat no cake whatsoever. And that's why there are quite a lot of times where I just try not to eat any because that's easier than stopping. Or you just have to declare that logically all amounts of cake are acceptable. And it's another case where both of those extremes are a bit extreme, really. And it's it's a bit more obvious, maybe, if we think about drinking. So some people just think all drinking is bad under all circumstances. And other people overdrink because they keep going, oh, well, one more won't hurt. And so it can be more help. Instead of drawing a hard line that can always be pushed, it can be it can be better to have some kind of fuzzy thing. And like you say, decide which way to err. So with a cake, I have a kind of fuzzy line, but I try to err on the side of less cake because I know once I get close to it, the line, then I'm very likely to stray over the top of it. And um, with grades, we've added in this thing called A minus, which is supposed to mean that there's not such a huge gap between A and B, but there's a kind of almost A. But then, of course, you get the, the then you get the grade boundary between B plus and A minus that is still a boundary. But at least that's a bit better than just having A and B. There's something in between, which is a sort of modified A and a modified B to take into account that there is a bit of gray in between. And I think that we should do that with sexual harassment as well. Instead of just saying this is illegal and that isn't illegal, then we should have shades in there saying that among the things that aren't actually technically illegal, some of them are really bad and some of them aren't even that bad, but we should nip them in the bud before they get worse because small acts of transgression can develop into larger ones if someone gets away with it. And so we should have a maybe a whole different kind of language like A minuses and B pluses, where we say, I know that this this particular action wasn't terrible in itself, but I don't want it to lead to somewhere that's terrible. Because if you wait to lead it until it leads to somewhere terrible before dealing with it, then somebody gets hurt by the terrible thing that happened. And maybe we want to err more on the side of protecting people from getting hurt. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. I also want to talk about the idea of blame and responsibility, because you get in, mm. into this in the book as well, which I think is an important thing for people in general to remember. Whenever anything happens uh, that we hear about in the news, that happens at our place of work, that happens in a family or in a relationship, uh, there is this urge when something goes wrong to find who's at fault, to pick the mm -hmm. person who has at fault or who is at most at fault that we can kind of blame because people are hurt, they're upset, they're angry. And the way we deal with that as people is to blame <laughs> people. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the truth is that it's almost never that simple. Um, there's often so many different factors that contribute to something happening. Uh, when we talk about things being systematic or things being systematic flaws or that there is a flaw or a problem in a system or a breakdown in a process, this is really what we're talking about. It's not that some person, some single point of failure happened. It's that all of these little failures added up to create something larger than itself. Yes, we don't live in isolation as humans. We're all working in communities and groups and in 
institutions and families and social networks and everything is connected to everything else. And so even if it seems that one person did something wrong, then you can often look at the system and say, well, why did the system even allow that? And that's why there are in many places, dangerous workplaces and even not dangerous workplaces, there are systems in place to try and take into account the fact that humans are a bit fallible. And so there are safety checks and that there are procedures to follow to make sure that mistakes don't get missed and then exacerbated. And so if someone did make a mistake in that case, yes, there is some responsibility on the person who made the mistake. But then why did that whole safety system fail as well? Why did we even have a system in which one person's actions could affect so many people? And maybe we should look at that instead of necessarily blaming that one person, especially, and this is when it bothers me the most, is if the person who's being blamed is is someone who's who doesn't hold very much power in the situation. And if we are going to blame people, then I think it would make more sense to blame people who hold more power in a system because they have more influence over how the system works. So, for example, in elections, people often shout and rage about people who don't vote. And they say, oh, well, it's a fault of people who don't vote. If they just came out and voted, then everything would be different. And the thing is that often the people who don't vote are the most hard up disenfranchised people in society. Maybe they can't get time off work to vote. Maybe they don't have transport to go and vote. Maybe they don't have a driver's license and they live somewhere where it has been declared that you have to have a driver's license in order to vote. Maybe they're disenfranchised by politics itself and that they don't believe that any vote they could cast could possibly make a difference to how difficult their life is. And the thing is, they're probably right. There are people who are absolutely not affected by any of the changes in power because their lives are so hard that nothing that people do in power is ever going to change that. And so why should we blame those people for not voting instead of blaming the politicians in power who have made it so that those people won't be affected either way by who gets elected? And so I never blame people for not voting, but I look at the system that has led to the fact that so many people don't vote. And I think that's a more balanced thing to do. You also walk through the example in your book of something that happened not that long ago on a United airline where a customer was forcefully pulled off the plane. It made a big splash in the news media. I imagine Mm -hmm. based on our conversation that you probably talked about it in class. Um, And this one is, again, one of these things where at the surface, it looks like there's an easy place to lay blame there, Um, though different people might find that easy place to lay blame a different person's footsteps. Um, but when you dig into the complexity of what led to this even being a scenario that happened, there's a whole bunch of other bits and pieces that contributed to this even becoming a thing that could happen. Yes. And I drew several diagrams showing those interconnectedness situations because my research field, category theory, involves a lot of diagrams that help us understand how things are connected. And if you just try and write it out in words, then it's really difficult to keep track of all things that are leading into it. And one of the things that's powerful about mathematical notation, although it can also be off-putting and a bit bizarre, is that it can show a lot of information using things like diagrams and arrows. And that's what I did with the diagrams to help me understand the situation. Because as you say, that it was possible to just blame one person, except that that meant that different groups of people were blaming different individuals for what happened, which meant that there were just shouting matches going on, again, 
on the internet where some people said, oh, well, it was just his fault for not doing what he was told. If you do what you're told, then you won't get hurt. End of story. And whenever someone says something like end of story, fact, or it really is that simple, then it's kind of a sign that it really isn't that simple. And that a person who says fact to back up their argument, it usually means that they don't have an argument to back up their argument. And they're just trying to shout to back up their argument. And some other people said, oh, well, it's just the fault of the security guards. They shouldn't have used force. But who told them to go in there in the first place and get that person off? Well, that was the airline. And maybe it was the airline's fault. But some people, I read one person saying that it's everyone's fault, all of us, you, me, and everyone, for sometimes missing flights. Because that is why the airlines overbook their flights, because people sometimes miss them. So it's our fault, which I thought was a particularly extreme version of blaming people who don't really have power, especially because often when you miss a flight, it's because your connecting flight was late. So it really wasn't your fault. It was, again, the airline's fault. So I drew this huge diagram of interconnectedness to show that there were many factors there, including the the airline's scheduling system. Why are they scheduling things so tightly that they have to get crew somewhere else at the very last minute and thus have to kick someone off a plane instead of maybe finding some other crew from somewhere else that could do it? I don't know what the answers are. And this is the thing. The mathematical analysis doesn't tell us how to solve the problem or how to resolve an argument or how to reach agreement with everyone on earth. That's not what the aim is. The aim is to have a better argument about it so that we can try and reach some understanding about why things happen and why we disagree about them in order to have a less divisive world. And that is the way in which I think math is going to help us here. It's not going to answer everything. And no, it's not going to help us win arguments. But if we could have arguments that are more about understanding what's going on rather than trying to beat other people, then I think we'll already have made a huge amount of progress. So I do want to talk about the limits of logic, because you do talk about this extensively in the book. Logic is not a surefire way to understand everything. It is a a tool and a particularly useful tool that we should make use of more. But there are things that logic can't do. It, like everything, like every tool, has limits and specific uses and things that it's good at and other things that it can't do for us. Mm -hmm. And that's very important because sometimes people are getting so divisive in the world that it seems like there's one group of people who believes in logic and science and another group who doesn't. And the other group just believes in emotions. And sometimes people pit logic and emotions against each other in a battle and say, oh, you're just being emotional, whereas I'm extremely logical only. And that is a fallacy because we need logic and emotions. As you say, logic can't do everything. And there are some ways in which it reaches the end of its power, and then we have to do something else. And one place where it reaches the end is if we simply don't have enough information to make a fully logical decision. In fact, I think that if you can make a fully logical decision, it's not even a decision, it's a logical deduction. And the whole point that that makes decisions difficult is that you don't have enough information ever to make a completely logical decision. And so you have to do something like guesswork. Now, it doesn't mean that you should do something that actually actively contradicts the logic, But at some point, you might have to guess according to, say, a balance of probabilities or something like that, or guess what something is going to make you feel because you've run out of information. But the other situation where logic can't help us is often in persuading people of things. 
And logical arguments are very good for demonstrating that your argument is sound. But that's a slightly different issue from actually convincing somebody else. And this is something that we find when even when we're writing the highest possible level of research papers in mathematics, we don't just sit down and write definitions and theorems and proofs. And that's the end of it. We, we put in a preamble, or at least a good paper does, saying things like the idea behind this is so that you can get a, some kind of, well, emotional idea behind something before delving into those technicalities. And it also happens when we're teaching students how to do math, because if they get an answer wrong, it's not going to help them if you just show them how to get the right answer. And that's sometimes why math teaching goes wrong. What you have to do is empathize with them in order to understand why they wrote down the answer that they did from their point of view, so that you can then get into their brain, as it were, and, and help shift that towards something that is more valid if you can see what isn't valid about it. If you just show them a right way of doing it, they'll still hold on to their idea. And this is really important for convincing people of anything in life ever, that if you just use logic, then that won't override a very strong emotion like fear. And I think that a lot of politics at the moment is based on fear. People are really afraid of some things. And no matter how many statistics you tell them, and no matter how much logic you throw at them, if they're afraid of something, they will still be afraid of it. And one example of this in my life was that I used to be really afraid of flying, really afraid of it. And no matter how many times people told me the statistics, it simply didn't help. I know that flying is somehow statistically safer than driving. But still, something about takeoff made me terrified. And I couldn't deal with it by logic. I had to deal with it just by some mental conditioning instead. By, but I, I, what I had to do was delve into why I was so afraid of takeoff. And I realized it was just the sound of takeoff, that that revving up increased my pulse rate and it increased my tension. And it made me think about the possibility of dying in a plane crash. And so all I have to do is distract myself during that sound so that I try not to think about the possibility. And if it just doesn't occur to me, then I won't be afraid of it. And that isn't, that isn't a, it's not logic overcoming my fear, but I used logic to find the actual source of my fear and to address it at its source. And so I think that we can't use a logical argument to convince someone not to be afraid of something, but we can use empathy and logic together to find the source of people's fears and try and address it from the root rather than beating their emotions over the head with logic, which will probably just make them cling onto their emotions harder. It's also important to be aware that just because you disagree with someone, it doesn't necessarily mean they're being illogical. The mm. logic that they're using, given the assumptions or the beliefs that they have, if we're talking about mathematics, we're talking about the idea of axioms here. If they're the axioms that they're taking that logic from, um, and that logic is internally consistent and doesn't create a, a paradox, their logic could actually be sound because you could actually have, you know, the thing that you're trying to argue against is a sort of fundamental belief they have, not the logic that they're used, that they're using to try and explain why they believe that. Yes. Yeah, so if someone tries to argue with someone by going, that's just illogical then that's not a terribly good argument because in mathematics, if you want to refute somebody's mathematical proof, you can't just go, it's not, it's not logical, it's illogical. You have to find an exact place where you think that the logic has failed. And often with, with other people's arguments, maybe their logic is faulty, but often, as you say, it's that they've just taken a completely different starting point from me. And in mathematics, we know that logic 
enables you to deduce things from other things. That's what logical implication is. A implies B means whenever A is true, B is true. But if A, if you don't have A, then you can't get anywhere. And so you can't deduce something from nothing. Just like if you have no ingredients in your kitchen, you can't make anything. And so you have to start from somewhere. And then you can say, okay, I can deduce this thing from this other thing. What can I deduce that other thing from? Well, you can deduce it from that other thing. But what about that thing? And so you work your way backwards. And eventually, there has to be some starting point, otherwise you wouldn't get anywhere. And those in mathematics are axioms. And that's how we make different mathematical worlds. So we start with some basic assumptions and we say, oh, I wonder what world this makes. And then we start with some different assumptions and we make a completely different world. And that's what happens with people and their fundamental beliefs, that you can have two extremely logical people who start with different fundamental beliefs, who will then end up with different fundamental, different answers in the end, or different different opinions about something. And it doesn't mean that either of them is being illogical, unless you only look at the other person's point from your own point of view, which means that you're being very egocentric and seeing, trying to see the whole world from your point of view, instead of seeing it from un, uh, someone else's point of view. And if you start with the premise that somebody else can still be logical, even if they disagree with you, then you can, I think you can understand so much more about what they're thinking, because then you can really try to unpack their logic back to something fundamental. And I find when people disagree politically, it's often because somebody else prioritizes the idea of individuals taking responsibility for themselves, as opposed to society taking care of everyone in society. And that's a fundamental difference that is an interesting one to explore, instead of just one person going, you're illogical, and the other person going, no, you're illogical. Or sometimes it's one person goes, you're illogical, and the other person goes, you're insensitive. And then we'll never ever find unity in this world of ours. It's, I think, quite often we need to extract the idea of being logical from the idea of being right or wrong, which is often what we're using logical or illogical as a shorthand for in everyday conversation. Yes, and I like the fact that, that so many people appeal to logic to to try and convince people of things because they know that logic is supposed to be rigorous, but simply yelling about it isn't the correct way to invoke logic, but using it to do something to unpack an argument is a correct way. And we should also distinguish between just being logical and actually being useful with your logic. Because there are a lot of ways that you can go around not contradicting logic. It's like when people say, I don't believe in same-sex marriage because I believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman. Now, that's not illogical, but it doesn't really get us anywhere because you just said the same thing twice with slightly different words. And so it doesn't, I don't think it really counts as a powerful logical argument. And I think that one of the important things about logic is to have techniques for building up arguments so that you can get somewhere either forwards or backwards, forwards in that you can build up a complex argument to get something out, and backwards so that you can unpack an argument to find out what's going on really at the heart of it. And it's a bit like when people people dump their partner and say, oh, well, I just, it just didn't feel right. And you can't get any further explanation out of them except, ah, it just didn't feel right, which is what I always think that's a bit pathetic, and that people should understand themselves better than that in order to provide some more explanation about why exactly what didn't feel right and that's something that that powerful logic can do it, it gets us really far back to the roots of things and i think that's a really valuable mathematical discipline getting back to the real root of why something is happening 
There's a, definitely, I think, a need in the current climate for us to be more engaged with each other's point of view, each other's context, and to try and um, treat each other's arguments with as much charity as we can. Mm. But having said that, because I think that, I mean, ultimately, I think that leads to more productive conversations that have a chance of going somewhere. I feel like you can actually maybe have a chance of changing a mind in that kind of situation if that's your end goal. At the very least, I think you'll come to understand the other person and possibly yourself. This is one of the things I found as I get better at arguing. It's not just understanding someone else's position, but the act mm -hmm. of arguing well allows me to better understand my own position, which I think mm -hmm. is incredibly valuable when you sort of start to think about how many of my own positions and opinions that I didn't really understand until I argued mm. with someone about it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that changing your own mind about something is is something that's important to be open to. Because if we're going to be rational people, which many of us hope to be, then we should change our mind if some new insight comes in that we hadn't thought of before. And there are many things about which I've changed my mind over the years. And I think that people who are not at all open to changing their mind ever, that's really what being closed-minded is about. If you believe something very strongly because of a strong fundamental belief and a very well-constructed logical argument, I don't think that counts as being closed-minded. But if you have absolutely no willingness to recognize that some more information has come in, then that, that really is closed-minded. And we should all be ready to admit that we haven't thought of something. And so, for example, I click on articles that if I disagree with a headline, I click on them and read them to try and see whether they will persuade me of something that I didn't, didn't already think of. And sometimes they do make a point that I hadn't already thought of. And then I realize that I do need to change my mind. Sometimes they don't. And then I think, well, at least I tried. And so I always read the comments as well. If I do understand, if I do agree with an article, then I read the comments to see what people say who disagree with it, to see whether I am missing something. And I think that's a very important discipline so that you don't get too entrenched in your own ways of thinking. And also so that you see the thoughts of people who disagree with you all the time other than instead of just getting stuck in an echo chamber and thinking that everyone mostly agrees with you. What are your thoughts on oppressed groups who are tired of trying to have these kinds of logical, gracious, charitable discussions and arguments about about their own systematic oppression with members of the group oppressing them? I mean, there's an emotional and mental exhaustion from uh, these people who believe they have done this and done this over and over to very little success. I mean, oftentimes we use you're not being logical or you're being emotional or why are you yelling at me or that kind of thing as as a weapon for people who have effectively been pounding their head against the wall of these types of discussions over and over to what they would feel is little avail. Yes. And I think that I would never ask an oppressed person to do more work to try and convince anyone of anything. It's the responsibility of people who, I think it's the responsibility of people who have more privilege and more power in a situation to try and help with that. And we all have more privilege than somebody. And some people have more overall privilege than everyone else. And some people get very upset with the whole discussion about privilege. And that's something that I address in the book, where 
Some people think that white privilege means that all white people are better off than all non-white people. And then they go, oh, well, I struggled when I was growing my I came from a working class family, and so I don't have white privilege. And that isn't what privilege means. What privilege means is that there is some aspect of you that if you didn't have that, then you would be even worse off in society. So yes, you might have struggled and and had to work really hard growing up because you were from a poor white family. But if you had had all the same circumstances, but also been black, then we'd expect you to be even worse off in society. And I think that's an important thing for everyone to remember, because most people have a tendency to think about how hard, the ways in which they're hard done by, instead of thinking about the ways in which other people have been more hard done by, or the ways in which we have been lucky. And so this sounds like a kind of, oh, count your blessings kind of thing. But I think that if we think about any way in which we personally are tired of having to educate people who are more privileged than us and don't understand it, we should remember to use some of that our energy to help people who are less privileged than us as well, because we could all do both. I definitely try and always be as charitable as possible when I am talking to someone about something where I am positioned as having more privilege, because I think that is the most beneficial way to approach that argument. And the best possible way for me to remain open-minded is to be as charitable to that argument as possible and to try so hard to see it from within that context, even though it's not my own, to try and as best I can to understand it from that context, Mm -hmm. even if it's not necessarily being communicated as clearly or as logically uh, as it possibly could be. Because um, I think as someone listening to an argument, you have to do as much work as the people Mm -hmm. uh, who Mm -hmm. are speaking. Yes. And I, I try to make those efforts, even in situations where I do feel like I'm in a less privileged group, but I would never demand that anyone else does that. That's just something that I've decided to do because that's a contribution that I want to make to society. And so I try to understand, yes, I do try to understand what straight white men are on about to try and persuade them to see things differently, even though that means that I'm doing some work that I wish that they would do for themselves. But if they're not doing it, I would rather try and get more people to do it so that we do in the end get somewhere. But then again, I do have enough privilege and stability in my life that I have some energy left over to do that. And if I can use that energy to some good ends to help other people, then I will try and do that. Eugenia, it's a fantastic book. And I've really enjoyed talking with you about it and mathematical logic. Uh, Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. I, uh, there was one thing that you dropped in the book that we don't have to talk about now, but I just want to say it really piqued my curiosity as well, which is that you found a relationship between a Bach prelude for the piano and the way we braid our hair. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, was, that, I was kind of personally sad that you never talked about that in the book. <laughs> oh, well, it's quite difficult to talk about it without playing the piece and showing some um, diagrams in color. But it's something I talk about when I give talks quite a lot. So I play the piece and then explain explain how I thought about the four different voices winding their way around each other. And then if you draw a diagram of it, then it just it's like a braid. Ah, so this might be on a YouTube video somewhere. Yes, it definitely is. Then I shall link to it in the show notes. Thank you so much. Oh. 
thank you so much. And uh, thank you as well for the book. If you are interested in learning more about Eugenia Chang or her books, including the most recent one, The Art of Logic in an Illogical World, we will have links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which, as always, you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 